The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, today to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. And I want to call your attention to the first 13 verses of this chapter. This is part of Jesus' sermon, the Olivet Discourse, and it was one of his last teaching opportunities before the cross. And this sermon was actually a private affair with his disciples. The crowds had been left behind at the temple, and Jesus took his disciples to the hillside of the Mount of Olives, and there he began to teach them about his second coming. And they didn't fully recognize what he was talking about, uh, but they did begin to understand a little bit about how that right then was not the time for the kingdom. That the first advent was not the time for him to begin his kingdom on the earth. And so uh, he told them how that future generations need to be prepared, that is always prepared for the coming kingdom when the time was right for it to come. And these first 13 verses here are intended to teach the disciples about watching and waiting for his return. Now, we're going to read this uh, rather lengthy portion of Scripture, 13 verses at the beginning of chapter 25. I know you're comfortable, but let's stand again for the reading of God's Word. And we begin at verse number 1, chapter 25. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Let us pray. Father, thank you for uh, the good singing that we've had thus far today and for just the joy of being able to worship you and to praise you. As we come to this passage of Scripture today, open our eyes to truth. And Lord, I pray that every person in here will realize where they do stand before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I know that there are some of you that at times think that the preacher has gone to seed on a doctrine. That is, I, I may preach something so many times that you think that, well, it's time for him to move on. Let's just get on to something else. Let's talk about some other subject. And often in our study of Matthew, we found ourselves backtracking over uh, old material time and time again. But there is a necessity to that, and, and that's because what we have here is a continuing story. We have a continuing narrative that's 
uh, each part is dependent upon the other parts. And so we have a story here that's building up to a monumental conclusion. And because our crowds are different at times, uh, we do have to go back and we have to repeat some things and sort of get ourselves on track as to where we are in this continuing narrative of Matthew. And now we've come to chapters 24 and 25, and to you it might seem like we're stuck in Groundhog Day. If you're familiar with that old movie, how many of you have ever seen that movie Groundhog Day? Well, most of you know what I'm talking about. It's a movie about doing the same thing day after day, living in the same day, day after day. And so you may think that you're stuck there as we have continued over these past few weeks to talk about the second coming of Christ. And you may wonder this, how many ways can I say that you need to be prepared for Jesus when he comes? And how many ways can I say that if you're not prepared, that that's going to be a terrible time for you, and it's going to be a time when judgment is going to fall upon you, and you're going to suffer the consequences of your unbelief? How many times can I say that? Well, we look at this sermon, and let's just go over it for just a moment, what we've already studied, and let's see the repetition of this same subject over and over again. Back in chapter 24, in verses 32 and 33, there's a parable about fig trees. And that was a parable about signs and indicators of the end. And Jesus was teaching how that people needed to watch for those signs. If they live in those days, watch for those signs to observe the beginning of the kingdom. In verse number 36, there's a warning that no person knows the day or the hour that Christ may come. In verse 42, Jesus had just spoken about Noah and the flood and how that people will be suddenly whisked away when he returns. And he said that you have to watch because you don't know the hour when the Lord will come. In verse number 43, he spoke of a thief that comes in the night. And he said that we must be vigilant because like a thief, when he comes, we don't know when he's coming. And so Jesus said, be ready for it because in an hour when you think not, he will return. And then in verse number 46, he began to speak of faithful servants and unfaithful servants. And then in verse number 50, he said, the Lord will come in an hour when his servants are not aware. And so there are no less than four times in the passage that Jesus makes the very same point and he alludes to it at least two more times. And now we enter into chapter 25 when we're right back to the very same point and he's given this long illustration of the same thing, how that people need to be watched, how they need to watch rather and to be ready when he comes again. Why does Jesus keep repeating the same theme? Why didn't he say it once? Maybe twice for emphasis and then be done with this and move on to something else. Why would he take seven times in preaching the very same point? Oh, I know a preacher who said that that's the best way that you can preach. He said, take a point, stay on that one point, make sure that everybody understands the one point. And certainly in this part of the sermon, that's what Jesus did. He felt, or he must have felt, that this was a topic that needed to be stressed repeatedly. And do we actually have to wonder why that he did this? We look around the world in general and, and really more particularly at Christians and we find out that this is actually a major failure for us as Christians because we don't actually live like we do believe that Jesus Christ could come at any time. The world is certainly not watching for Christ, but the thing that concerns us the most at this particular time is that Christians are not watching for Christ. 
And their lives don't show that they actually believe that he could come at any moment. Now the point of this parable is to stress that there are many in the church that are not looking for Christ. We're not making a comparison now to the world, people that are on the outside. We're talking about people that come to church, people that are members of the church. And sadly, what we'll find out is there are many people in the church that don't know Christ. They're not really prepared for him. They're just pretending to know him. Now, the main point here is that many think that they are prepared enough. They think that they know enough when actually they're not prepared at all. And when he comes, they'll find out. Or when death comes to them, they'll find out that they didn't know as much as they thought that they knew. And folks, that is going to be utterly disastrous. Now, let's take a few more moments to look at the parable. Uh, I didn't put this on your listening sheet today, but you may want to make a note of it in the margin, that the parable is actually about two types of people. There are sincere believers and there are superficial believers. And this is a quite easy parable to understand as long as we don't try to do too much with the illustration. Now what we find that many people do when they try to interpret the parable, they look for hidden meanings in it. They look for all sorts of symbolisms in it. When really, all that we have to do is to keep in mind two types of people. There are sincere believers, and there are people that are superficial believers, and those two groups are mixed together in the church. Now, the disciples got a very simple illustration here. They were going to have no trouble deciphering what this meant. Jesus was not trying to develop a new systematic theology in his very last teachings. But rather, he gives them the illustration of a wedding. Something that they were very, very familiar with. And they wouldn't have to wonder because four previous times he'd already said, nobody knows the day or the hour. Everybody needs to be watching and be ready at all times. Now, this morning and uh, in the very early afternoon... I want to give you four words that will help to draw out the intent of this parable. Four words. Now, the first of these words is very obvious to us. That is the word preparation. Preparation. The story is about a wedding. And for those of you that have planned elaborate weddings, you know that there has to be preparation. Now, if you decide to go to the courthouse and get a justice of the peace or something like that, maybe not so much preparation. Uh, I have performed... Uh, couple of weddings in my office and there really wasn't a lot of preparation. Uh, I was the bridesmaid. I was the best man. I was the ring bearer. I was the flower girl. I was doing it all. I mean there really wasn't a whole lot of preparation for those weddings. But we're talking about a wedding here. It's not a simple affair. A Jewish wedding was not a simple thing. It was a huge celebration. It was a whole town affair. Now, unlike our weddings, there was a lot of preparation, more than we would have, because everything starts a year before the marriage is actually to take place. And the preparation begins not with the bride and the groom, but the preparation actually begins with the parents, with two parents, the parent of the, the father of the bride and the father of the groom. And these two would enter into a contract with one another, and they were the ones who decided who was going to get married. Which daughter, which son, they decide who's going to get married. And so a dowry was paid to the bride's family, and that meant they entered into a contract, and it was a year-long engagement that they would consummate this marriage. 
And it was considered to be marriage even before the marriage was consummated. For a year, the bride and the groom had never actually spent any time together, not a night together at all. And for them to break it up, though, it was a marriage, still considered a marriage. It was a contract, and to break that up meant divorce. And divorce was something that nobody wanted to get involved with. That was a very nasty affair. And so for a year, the couple was married, but they never spent a night together until that year was over. Now, at the end of the year, you can imagine the anticipation. There was a huge party that was planned. The whole town was invited to it, and the celebration would last for seven days, sometimes longer. And there were people that were chosen to participate in the wedding. And these ones who helped out with the wedding, on the wedding night, they would escort the bridegroom to the house of the bride and take her to the place of celebration. And eventually that night would end up with the marriage being consummated. Now, in this story, there are ten virgins. And that might confuse you just a little bit, but you can think of it this way, that if it will help you, just compare them to bridesmaids. There are ten bridesmaids that are in the story. Now, we don't need to make anything out of the word virgins here. That doesn't mean, mean people that are pure and somebody's better than another. That's just an illustration that's given. And it's really talking about what we would think about, about uh, bridesmaids. And the bridesmaids would come to the wedding, and the wedding was at night in those days. The wedding was at night, and it was their responsibility to carry lights throughout the streets in order to escort the bridegroom to the house of the bride. Now, those streets were very dark at night, and so this was their one great responsibility. You have to get this. This is their awesome responsibility. They must carry the light. Now, this is a long-awaited night that has come, and they have to be ready to do their job. But we notice in verse number 2 that the bridesmaids didn't take their responsibility equally. Five of them were wise, and five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise because they knew that the night was long, and they knew how these weddings could go that nobody really had a set schedule that was figured out. Nothing was figured down to the minute. No real schedule for this. And so there were often delays, and they had to be ready for those delays. Five were wise because they took plenty of oil with them. They were wise because they had enough oil. They knew they had enough that should this thing go up into the wee hours of the morning, they have their oil, they have their lights, and they can get the bride, the bridegroom to the bride's house without any problem. So five were wise because they bring the oil with them. Now, just a side note to this, that the lamps that they used are not what we think of as a little lamp like you find in the house. Neither is it a lantern like you would use around a campfire that gives you a little bit of light. But rather, this, this light is actually a torch. The lamp that we're talking about here is a torch with a rags that are wrapped around it and they're soaked in oil and those are set on fire. And as they walked through those very dark streets at night, there was enough light to light the whole area up so they could see the way. And carrying all of that oil to keep that torch lit was a very cumbersome job. It was not easy to deal with. But five of these virgins, five of the bridesmaids are, are wise because they're fully prepared. But then we have these other five, and they're foolish, Jesus says. They don't have their oil. 
Oil is too heavy to carry. It's too difficult for them to lug around. And so they thought that they would be safe if they just wait till later, that they can perhaps get some oil in a different place. Perhaps they can borrow it from the others that are there. And so they just thought that they had plenty of time to take care of oil before the bridegroom was announced. Now let's pause here for just a moment and let's get our bearings. Who are the virgins in the parable? Well, there are ten of them. All ten of them are together. All ten of them are bridesmaids. All ten of them intend that they're going to be at the wedding. There isn't really much discernible difference between the five and the five. All of them are in the procession. They all have their torches. And they all intend to be there at the celebration. Now, what these ten virgins represent are people in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They represent people that are in the Berean Baptist Church, that we are all here, we're all gathered together, we're all here for the purpose of worship, we're all in the Lord's Church, all of us have been become members of the church, so to speak, we've all been baptized, we've all been sanitized, we're all ready to do something for the Lord And so we have our lamps and all of us say, yes, we are ready to shine for Jesus. Now, as far as I'm concerned, when I look out over a congregation, I can't see much difference in you. The person that's sitting next to you can't see much difference between you and him. And now, of course, I'm talking here about church members. I'm talking about people that attend regularly, people that that contribute and go about all the business of membership. Some of you work in Sunday school. Some of you are in the Pioneer Club. Some of you are in the choir. Some of you are faithful members that attend every service and you sit in the pew and you lend your support and you pray for the pastor and you do all of those things. You give all the encouragement that's necessary. And as far as I'm concerned, when I look out over the congregation, I can't see any difference in you. All of you are participants. So, I look at you. And I don't see that difference. But here the word of God says that there are certain people in the group that appear prepared. But they're not prepared. Five of you, so to speak, are not prepared. You're foolish. And by the way, you might note this, that the Greek word here for foolish is the word moros. Which is the same word from which we get moron. And so... There are five of you that are stupid, spiritually speaking. And that's because while all the church stuff is going on around you, you're just playing the part. You've got an act that's going on. You're here at church and you're just pretending to be a Christian. This, and that act actually makes you a different person when you're on the outside of these walls. You look different when you're on the outside. You're different at work. Your language isn't clean. Your stories are off color. Your texting and your tweeting and your habits are not things that people would look at and say, well, this person is obviously a Christian. And you're actually morons. Because there are some of you that think that the stuff that you put out there online is private. Oh, you would think nobody would share what you said. And that's not going to get around the church, but oh, how wrong you are. Because it gets spread around. And there are things that you do that you wouldn't want me to put up here on the screen and let people see what you have said during the week. Some of you, people wouldn't be so surprised, actually, if we put it on the screen because they know about you. 
They know the kinds of things that you put on your Facebook page. They know the kinds of things that go back and forth, and they see all of that. And so there wouldn't be too much surprise with them that there are people in the church that don't actually look like Christians. Now look back at chapter 24 and verse number 51. There Jesus is talking about an evil servant. And he says, this is what's going to happen to the evil servant. And shall cut him asunder and point him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that just tells us that your portion is with the hypocrites. That's the five foolish virgins. They are church members. They're playing the church game. But they aren't actually real. Now, do you know this, that there are good Christians that think about joining a church and they know the problem of Matthew chapter 25. They know that there are members of the church that aren't real. And so it's a good thing to check things out and to get to know people and find out if there are five that aren't real or maybe even to find out if none of us are actually real. The five foolish virgins weren't real. And we notice here there are five of them. That's half of the number. Now, I don't think that Jesus is trying to give us a statistic about how many people in the church are saved and how many people are lost. But it's a good thing to look at here. He's not giving us a statistic that says 50% of all church members are lost because I think in some churches, 9 out of 10 are. In some churches, 30 or 40% may be lost. I don't know. But I do know this, that using a half of them is a very good indication that there are more people in the church that we think know the Lord Jesus Christ than actually do. Now, the first word we have is preparation. The second word is the word anticipation. All ten of the virgins are waiting for the bridegroom. All of them know that the event is about to happen. All ten of them are together. And I'm sure that their conversations that take place during the night are all about this great wedding celebration and how the bridegroom is going to come and how the planning went and how the party is about to take place and the time is close. And they're eagerly anticipating that the bridegroom is going to come. Now, you understand that the bridegroom represents Christ. They are eagerly, all of them eagerly talking about this, anticipating the bridegroom will come. And that's what I do when I preach to you. I want you to know that Jesus is coming. And I want you to understand the hope that we have in Christ, that when Jesus Christ appears, it's going to be different for all of us. It's going to be a totally different experience. What a wonderful thing it's going to be when Jesus comes. Now, the world is a very dark place. The night is upon us. There's very little light in the world. And in the time of the apostles, when Jesus was speaking to them, the darkness was really compounded because these are people that don't even know what the next day is going to bring. In this respect, the next day could be the day of their death. Trusting in Jesus Christ could mean the day of their death. And so Christians in that time were prone to great discouragement. And especially prone to it when they saw that their leaders, when great men of God, were suffering. These are people that need hope. They need something to look forward to. And if you read the book of Philippians, that's actually the background for Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. That the people in Philippi were very distressed because Paul was in prison. And they were thinking this, if God is not going to keep his great servant, the apostle Paul, out of prison, then what's going to happen to us? And so they consigned themselves to the Eeyore syndrome. Woe is me. 
And Paul was not about to have any of this feel sorry for me stuff. And so he wrote in chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. Now what he's very simply telling them is, don't be surprised by all of this. This is the lot for a Christian. It's going to be difficult for us. There will be suffering. And he said, we're all in this together. And he took them into chapter 2 and he gave them this great example of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he suffered and how he went down, 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 all the way to the point of death on the cross. And he continued on by taking them into the ninth verse and talks about the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ after he'd been through all of that. And he says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he tells them that Christ is now exalted. And the great anticipation for every Christian is, We shall also be exalted. When he comes again, we're going to be exalted. And so that's to tell us not to be discouraged. And I preach to you about the second coming of Christ. I tell you that he's coming again and I keep repeating that so you won't be discouraged. When life gets tough, when things are going wrong, when it's really hard, you have something to look forward to. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he's going to take all of this away from us. Look forward to that. Anticipate it. Because that hope is as real as Jesus Christ himself. Now you wonder why Jesus kept emphasizing this. Why keep emphasizing watch and be ready? Why did he say it four other times and then hits it again? Here's a clue for you. Look at verse number five. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. That's why we keep on preaching this. Christians don't listen. Christians get tired of it. We've been living with this promise for how many years? 2,000 years we've been preaching about Christ coming and people just get tired of hearing it. Uh, they go to sleep on this. They, they just act like they don't want to hear it anymore. So we stop thinking about it when we get to church and we're not too excited when we come to church and we just kind of go through the motions. There's not much going on. I mean, what are we going to do in church this week? You ask that? What are we going to do in church this week? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're, uh, we're going to sing program eight for the 700th time. What are we going to do? Well, well the choir's going to sing. And uh, then we're going to come down and we're going to shake hands. Then we're going to take an offering. And then the preacher is going to get on that topic that he's beat to death so many times. That's what we're going to do in church. And there are many of you that are literally going to sleep in the service. Somehow you think I don't see that. I mean, I'm standing here looking at all of you. And I know when you're asleep. Thank, you, you need to thank me that I don't bring that up on your way out. Because when you shake my hand and say, Pastor, that was a great sermon, I just might say, how do you know? So some of you literally sleep during the service. But then there are others of you that have your eyes wide open, but you're as dazed as you can be. I mean, it's like nothing's going on up here. And so that blank stare, and if you want to know why I keep it cold in the church, that's part of the reason. Because you you shiver enough, maybe you'll stay awake. So we're all prone to do that. All Christians 
are prone to do this. So guess what? It takes five or six times to get the point across. You just have to keep repeating it. And the message is, you've got to be prepared when he comes. Now there's two words, preparation and anticipation. Now things start to get a little bit dicey. Number three is desperation. Verse number six, And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all of those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And so at midnight there comes this startling cry. Here you have ten sleeping virgins. And now the cry comes. They're suddenly awakened. The announcement is made that the bridegroom has appeared and he's now ready to go. Well, throughout the night there would have been many such of these announcements. At 11, uh, 10 o'clock, let's say, that they, they would say, hey, the bridegroom is on his way. And everybody perk up and look around. But they didn't see him. Start to doze a little bit. At 11 o'clock, here comes the cry again. The bridegroom is on his way. And then at 11.15, the bridegroom is on his way. He still hasn't shown. 11.30, the bridegroom is on his way. And so they keep hearing the same thing over and over and over again. He is coming. And again, folks, that's what we do with preaching. We keep saying that he is coming. But what did Jesus say? Nobody knows the hour. I can't tell you the exact time. I'm telling you that he's coming. He will come, and one of these days, the factual time of his arrival is going to be here. And if you wonder what the announcement is when he comes, look back in chapter 24 at verse number 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So, boom, all of a sudden, here he is. Did I wake you up? Oh, he's here now. And back there in verse number 27, it says, As the lightning shines from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And so it wakes everybody up. And it's a sudden. There's no time to change. There's no time to do anything different. There's no time to put on other clothes. There is no time to go get any oil. They're startled from their sleep. And five of these virgins have no oil and no way to get any. So it is their time of desperation. What are they going to do? Well, they only have one choice. In that split second, there's one choice. Beg the others to share their oil with them. Now, let me break that down for you so you can understand the teaching. What do they need? They need oil. I mean, this is the one thing. This is not about five people that are selfish and won't share their oil. This is, this is really about, and we'll get it to in a minute, these are about, this is about people that can't share their oil, but the thing here is the oil is the difference maker. The oil is the thing that gets them into the procession. The oil takes them out of the street and into the house. They must have oil. That's the only thing they need. They need the oil. And what is oil in the Scripture? Oil is the Holy Spirit. Oil is... That Spirit of God, the grace that comes into your heart. The oil is the Holy Spirit of God and they have no oil. The five foolish ones don't actually have the Holy Spirit in them. They're just pretenders. They don't have any oil. Now they looked good. 
They look just like everybody else in the church, but there is no oil. The Holy Spirit hasn't come in. And that's why when they're on the outside of the church, they don't look very much like Christians. It's hard for them to keep their hands clean on the outside. They're always into some kind of dirty business because there really isn't any oil on the inside. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the holy hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. We're talking about people here that don't have any grace. All they will ever be is pretenders. How many churches are there where people are carrying the lamp but they don't have any oil to set it on fire? Now they have just enough that they can burn a little. They burn for a little while and you know what they're trying to go on? They're going on the energy of the flesh. They're going in their own self-righteousness. And they've got a little bit of that because they do some of the things that church people do. They've got a little bit of that self-righteousness but that is never going to be enough to light the path of the bridegroom. That is never enough. Now notice what the desperate five do. They ask to borrow from the five that are prepared. Why don't they share? Why, Why don't they share their oil? Well, if you understand the comparison, this is something that you can't share. Grace is a personal thing. I can't give you grace. Just because you're in church today doesn't mean that you have grace. They can't share it with anybody because these people that have it need all that they have. God God gives us necessary grace. And if you haven't already been to buy from him, you're not going to be able to get it from somebody else. And yet that is what people try. They think that being close to Christians, being in the proximity of Christian, that's enough. Mom's a Christian. And dad's a Christian. And I, and I was raised in a Christian home where I've been in church all of my life. But no, the verses are teaching that salvation is personal. You can't get a little bit of someone else's grace. You have to come to Christ. You have to have a personal relationship with him. You have to be sure of your belief. And you must come and you must kneel down before him and receive him as Lord and Savior yourself. You can't get it from somebody else. Now, when he comes, and uh, when he comes, he's not going to look for you to see what mom and dad did. And when he comes, he's, he's not going to come to you because you had really good intentions. I mean, look how close you came. You're in church today. You, you do things that church people do. You, you make it to Sunday school. Praise God. Some of you don't, but praise God. Some of you make it to Sunday school. You volunteered at the food pantry. You gave to the benevolent fund. So I'm really, really close. I should be close enough just to get on in, shouldn't I? And the answer is no. You can't, you can't borrow grace. You can't borrow faith. When it comes down to this thing between you and him, he's the only way that you get in. And you only come his way. Now the five then that turned away aren't selfish. Here's why. Because they knew the wedding had to go on. It can't fail because five other virgins suddenly became foolish by giving away their oil. So there is no light when the bridegroom, not enough for everybody when the bridegroom comes. Now, the way that this thing is going to work, it's only going to work if the bridegroom's instructions are carried out to the letter. 
This is their one great responsibility. They have to show the light, carry the light. Well, friends, it becomes a day of desperation for those who thought that everything was okay. And in that split second of death, or in the twinkling of an eye when Christ comes again, they're not going to be ready. And they're not just desperate, they are helplessly and hopelessly lost when he comes and they haven't trusted him. Now, I just pray that some of you that are church members, that you've just been playing the game, but you've not really been in the game. I hope that you realize that and that you come to Christ. Now, that brings us to our last word, and that is the word ruination. Look at verse number 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Now the last word is ruination. The five foolish virgins went to buy some oil. They were frantically trying to get ready, and the bridegroom came. Well, the five wise ones joined into the procession, and so they joyfully went into the house, and when they went in, the door was shut. While all that was taking place, the five have gone to find some oil. The Bible doesn't really say if they found any or not. That doesn't matter. Regardless, when they got back to the party, the door was already shut. And so they knocked on the door, and they cried out, and they said, Lord, Lord, open to us. And do you notice here that they cry out to him as if they knew him? They're church members. After all, they're church members. They're good people. They look just like the five that went in. At least they did in church. They knew him, didn't they? And so they cry out, Lord, open to us. And there's a reply that comes from behind the door. Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Now that word verily... That's an emphatic word. Most times, or many times in the scriptures, the word verily is translated as amen. That's a word of finality. It means so be it. So this would be like saying, this is final. I don't know you. Well, of course he knows them, doesn't he? Of course he knows them. I mean, they were supposed to be in the wedding party. They were friends, or so they thought. They even looked like they were the chosen ones that were coming to the party. But now he says, I don't know you. And emphatically he says that. These are church members. They're on the roll of the church. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils? Now obviously these are people who think they're Christians. And in thy name have done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, here's a little news item for you. Not everybody that's in the church is going to get into heaven. Some of them, he doesn't know. He never had a relationship with them. Now, maybe with mom and maybe with dad, but that doesn't count. You can't borrow grace from them. Now, you look at this and you may think, well, this is really sad and also it's somewhat cruel because despite their pleading, he won't let them in. Well, let me put it in a modern context for you. What if you planned a big wedding? For over a year, you went over the details. 
You hired a wedding planner. They aren't cheap. You paid thousands of dollars to a florist. You decorated the church. You planned a reception. You had hundreds of guests that were invited. And you selected ten bridesmaids and you gave them all of their instructions. And you said, here's the dress that you need to wear. This is the place where you go to get your hair fixed. These are the shoes that you wear. Here are the flowers that you're supposed to carry. And everybody goes to the rehearsal. Everybody shows up. The rehearsal. Everybody's here for the rehearsal. Bridegroom's not here yet. The bride's not here yet. Everybody's here for the rehearsal. You get that? We're all here for the rehearsal. But the day of the wedding comes. Not everybody's ready to go. Five of the bridesmaids are there and they have bells on. They expect to go into the wedding. They're going to help you with your big day. They care about you. They care that this is the very biggest day of your life. But there are five of the bridesmaids that don't get their hair fixed. And they they don't put on the dresses. Five of them don't show up at the church on time. And so... The wedding goes on without them. But then those five show up later after everything is done and it's just like nothing happened. They, they come to the reception and they want to come in and they want to sit at the table that's specially prepared for bridesmaids. They want to sit at the special table and they want to sit there and act as if nothing is wrong. But they didn't take any care for you. They didn't really care about your big day. After all the planning, the rehearsals, and all the money that's spent, this is going to be the best day of your life. And they showed that they don't really love you. They are more concerned about self. Now, I'll pause there for just a second. You, you get the analogies, I hope, that Jesus Christ is coming back, and people that aren't prepared don't love him. People that aren't prepared didn't really care. I mean, they thought more about self and what I, what I want to do, how I'm going to live this thing out, and they're not thinking about Christ at all. Now, if you are in this situation, what are you going to do? Here, here are five of your bridesmaids that are careless. They, they don't have any love and concern for you. I kind of think that those are the kinds of things that, that, that sever relationships forever, don't they? I mean, that's a tough thing to get over right there. Five are unprepared, and so they show they have no love for you at all. And this is the point of this whole thing. You have to be sure that your heart is right, that your love is where it's supposed to be, or you're going to be shut on the outside. And when that door is shut, that is the finality of unbelief. The door is not going to be opened. That door is the door to eternal life. That door is the entrance into God's kingdom. And when that door is shut, there is nobody that can open it. Now understand this, that when you die or when the Lord comes, the way that you are is the way that you stay. There's not going to be a change. When Jesus comes back, the way that you are is the way that you will stay. Let's go to the last chapter of the Bible. This is a fitting place for us to end the sermon today. We'll look at Revelation chapter 22. We'll see how the whole thing ends here. Revelation 22. And in verse number 8. Revelation 22 verse number 8. The Apostle John of course wrote the book of Revelation. He says, I, John, saw these things. All of these things that have taken place previous to in that revelation and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. There's a whole other sermon right there, folks. 
I mean, I'd love to preach this sermon. This is why you don't bow before men. It's why you don't worship angels. It's why you don't, you don't tell the priest or talk to the priest and have him be a mediator between you and God. Jesus, or, or John says here, the angel said to him, Worship God. That's who you're supposed to worship. Anyway, verse number 10. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Now you see verse 11, that's finality. The unjust will be forever unjust. The filthy will be forever filthy. These are people that are on the outside of the door. And they're going to stay outside of the door. And on the outside, there is nothing but the blackness and darkness of hell forever. Those that are righteous, he says, will be righteous still. Those that are holy will be holy still. Those are people that are on the inside of the door. And it's not going to change for them. Always righteous, always holy. Verse number 12, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his work shall be. Then verse number 20, if you'll look down there, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. I wish that I could burn this into you in the same way that Jesus did. Four times, then a fifth time, be ready. Make sure that you are prepared. What you have to do is what the Apostle Paul encouraged the Corinthian church, and that is to examine yourself. He said, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Now, what that means is look at your life and see if the evidence is there. Are you really a Christian? Do you have evidence to show that you're really a Christian? Or are you having so much trouble with the things of the world that you can't turn loose of those things and you don't show it on the outside which you think that you are on the inside? That is inside the church. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves? How that Jesus Christ is in you except ye be reprobates? Examine yourself. Now, there isn't any time in the hour of death to change anything. No time to change should Christ immediately come. John Broadus, the great commentator, said, The only way to be ready when Jesus comes is to be ready always. The only way to be ready when Jesus comes is to be ready always. Are you prepared to meet him? What's your heart like? Are, are you really a member of the household of the faith? Or have you just showed up to kind of mix in with the other members of the church? Do you actually belong to Christ? Are you in that wedding party? You need to know that because your unbelief is final. There is no change. You have to know him now. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we think about this the subject that's before us and so many times you've talked about watching and being ready and talking about your return and we aren't through with the subject yet you come right back to it as we look at the next section and there we're going to see how you talk about faithful service to you and what a real Christian how a real Christian proves that he is a child of God Lord I pray that even today Christians would examine their hearts and uh, there this sh this should be something that that really ought to be checked into very carefully 
and this is not a, a, a thing that we put off because it might embarrass us a little bit because people thought that we were Christians and we really aren't and we have to tell them that. Oh, how much better it is to, to believe in you, to trust in you and be an encouragement to someone else, to check out a heart of unbelief and to turn things over to you and really have the grace of God in our hearts, have the Holy Spirit living within us. Speak to someone today, Lord. Help us as, and all of us as church members to live like we really do expect that you will come at any time. Bless us as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.